0: Hello, and welcome to For Starters from All for One Productions in Fort Wayne, Indiana, the podcast that brings you audio appetizers from time-tested tales for the whole family. Our theater company prepares a full season of values-rich, thought-provoking, family-friendly fare for a local audience. But not every great story makes a great stage play, and there are more delicious tales to taste than we have time to cook. So we've created this podcast in order to expand our menu, introducing a larger audience to a wider array of literary offerings. Our actors will read you a chapter or two, tell you a bit about the whole work, and point you to where you can read, watch, or listen to the rest of the story. We hope you'll enjoy what you hear and that it makes you hungry for more. This podcast is produced with the support of the Community Foundation of Greater Fort Wayne. Welcome to episode two of For Starters. This week's tale is chapter one of The Scarlet Pimpernel by Baroness Ortzi, a Hungarian-born English novelist and playwright of the late Victorian era. The Scarlet Pimpernel is one of those rare works which began life as a play and proved so popular that it was reworked as a novel. After a London stage debut in 1903, the adventures of Sir Percy Blakeney during the French Revolution were expanded into book form and published in 1905. Baroness Ortsy went on to write several other novels and a number of short stories featuring the daring hero who disguises himself as a foolish nobleman in order to save French aristocrats from being guillotined. This excerpt has been lightly edited to translate most of the French words into English. Now allow yourself to be transported back to France in the late 1700s, where the Scarlet Pimpernel is once more poised to upset the bloodthirsty citizens of Paris.
1: A surging, seething, murmuring crowd of beings that are human only in name, for to the eye and ear they seem not but savage creatures, animated by vile passions and by the lust of vengeance and of hate. The hour, some little time before sunset, and the place, the west barricade at the very spot where, a decade later, a proud tyrant raised an undying monument to the
2: nation's glory and his own vanity. During the greater part of the day, the guillotine had been kept busy at its ghastly work. All that France had boasted of in the past centuries of ancient names and blue bloods had paid toll to her desire for liberty and for fraternity. The carnage had only ceased at this late hour of the day because there were other, more interesting sights for the people to witness a little while before the final closing of the barricades for the night. And so the crowd rushed away from the Place de la Greve and made for the various barricades in order to watch this interesting and amusing sight.
3: It was to be seen every day, for those Aristos were such fools! They were traitors to the people, of course all of them men, women, and children, who happened to be descendants of the great men, who since the Crusades had made the glory of France, her old noblesse. Their ancestors had oppressed the people, and crushed them under the scarlet heels of their dainty buckled shoes, and now the people had become rulers of France, and crushed their former masters, not beneath their heel, for they went mostly shoeless in these days, but beneath the more effectual weight, the knife of the guillotine. And daily, hourly, the hideous instrument of
1: torture claimed its many victims, old men, young women, tiny children, even until the day when it would finally demand the head of a king and of a beautiful young queen. But
2: this was as it should be were not the people now the rulers of France. Every aristocrat was a traitor, and his ancestors had been before him for two hundred years now. the people had sweated and toiled and starved to keep a lustful court in lavish extravagance. Now the descendants of those who had helped to make those courts brilliant had to hide for their lives to fly if they wished to avoid the tardy vengeance of the people. And they did try to hide and tried to fly.
1: That was just the fun of the whole thing. Every afternoon before the gates closed and the market carts went out in procession by the various barricades, some fool of an aristo endeavored to evade the clutches of the Committee of Public Safety in various disguises under various pretexts. They tried to slip through the barriers which were so well guarded by citizen-soldiers of the Republic. Men in women's clothes, women in male attire, children disguised in beggar's rags. There were some of all sorts, former counts, marquises, even dukes, who wanted to fly from France, reach England or some other equally accursed country and there try to rouse foreign feeling against the glorious revolution, or to raise an army in order to liberate the wretched prisoners in the temple, who had once called themselves sovereigns of France.
3: But they were nearly always caught at the barricades. Sergeant Bibo, especially at the West Gate, had a wonderful nose for scenting an Aristo in the most perfect disguise. Then, of course, the fun began. Bibo would look at his prey as a cat looks upon the mouse, play with him, sometimes for quite a quarter of an hour, pretend to be hoodwinked by the disguise, by the wigs and other bits of theatrical make-up, which hid the identity of a former noble marquis or
2: count. Oh, Bibot had a keen sense of humor. And it was well worth hanging around that west barricade in order to see him catch an Aristo in the very act of trying to flee from the vengeance of the people. Sometimes
1: Bibot would let his prey actually out by the gates, allowing him to think for the space of two minutes, at least, that he really had escaped out of Paris and might even manage to reach the coast of England in safety. But Bibot would let the unfortunate wretch walk about 10 meters toward the open country. Then he would send two men after him and bring him back,
2: stripped of his disguise. Oh, that was extremely funny. For as often as not, the fugitive would prove to be a woman, some proud marchioness, who looked terribly comical when she found herself in Bibot's clutches. After all and knew that a summary trial would await her the next day, and after that, the fond embrace of Madame La Guillotine.
1: No wonder that on this fine afternoon in September, the crowd round Bibot's gate was eager and excited. The lust of blood grows with its satisfaction. There is no satiety. The crowd had seen a hundred noble heads fall beneath the guillotine today, it wanted to make sure that it would see another hundred fall on the morrow.
3: Bibot was sitting on an overturned and empty cask, close by the gate of the barricade. A small detachment of citizen soldiers was under his command. The work had been very hot lately. Those cursed aristos were becoming terrified and tried their hardest to slip out of Paris. Men, women, and children whose ancestors, even in remote ages, had served those traitorous Bourbons. All were traitors themselves and ripe right food for the guillotine. Every day, Bibot had the satisfaction of unmasking some fugitive royalists and sending them back to be tried by the Committee of Public Safety, presided over by that good patriot, Citizen Fouquet Tonville. Robespierre and Danton both had commended Bibot for his zeal, and Bibot was proud of the fact that he, on his own initiative, had sent at least fifty aristos to the guillotine. But today,
1: all the sergeants in command at the various barricades had had special orders. Recently, a very great number of aristos had succeeded in escaping out of France and in reaching England safely. There were curious rumors about these escapes. They had become very frequent and singularly daring. The people's minds were becoming strangely excited about it all. Sergeant Cropierre had been sent to the guillotine for allowing a whole family of Aristos
2: to slip out of the North Gate under his very nose. It was asserted that these escapes were organized by a band of Englishmen whose daring seemed to be unparalleled and who, from sheer desire to meddle in what did not concern them, spent their spare time in snatching away lawful victims destined for Madame La Guillotine. These rumors soon grew in extravagance. There were no doubt that this band of meddlesome Englishmen did exist. Moreover, they seemed to be under the leadership of a man whose pluck and audacity were almost fabulous. Strange stories were afloat of how he and those aristos whom he rescued became suddenly invisible as they reached the barricades and escaped out of the gates by sheer supernatural agency. No one had seen these mysterious Englishmen. As for their leader,
1: he was never spoken of, save with a superstitious shudder. Citizen Fouquier Tomville would in the course of the day receive a scrap of paper from some mysterious source. Sometimes he would find it in the pocket of his coat. At others, it would be handed to him by someone in the crowd whilst he was on his way to the sitting of the Committee of Public Safety. The paper always contained a brief notice that the band of meddlesome Englishmen were at work, and it was always signed with a device drawn in red, a little star-shaped flower, which the English call the Scarlet Pimpernel. Within a few hours of the receipt of this impudent notice, the citizens of the Committee of Public Safety would hear that so many royalists and aristocrats had succeeded in reaching the coast and were on their way to England and
2: safety. The guards at the gate had been doubled. The sergeants in command had been threatened with death, whilst liberal rewards were offered for the capture of these daring and impudent Englishmen. There was a sum of 5,000 francs promised to the man who laid hands on the mysterious and elusive Scarlet Pimpernel. Everyone felt that Bibo would be that man, and
3: Bibo allowed that belief to take firm root in everybody's mind. And so, day after day, people came to watch him at the West Gate, so as to be present when he laid hands on any fugitive Aristo who perhaps might be accompanied by that mysterious Englishman. Bah! He said, to his trusted corporal. Citizen Gropier was a fool. Had it been me now
2: at that north gate last week? Citizen Bibot spat on the ground to express his contempt for his comrade's stupidity. How did it happen, citizen? asked the corporal. Gropier was at the gate, keeping a good watch, began Bibot pompously, as the crowd closed in round him, listening eagerly to his narrative. We've all heard of
3: this meddlesome Englishman, this accursed Scarlet Pimpernel. He won't get through my gate, morbleu, unless he be the devil himself. But Gropier was a fool. The market carts were going through the gates. There was one laden with casks, driven by an old man with a boy beside him. Gropierre was a bit drunk. But he thought himself very clever. He looked into the casks, most of them at least, and saw that they were empty,
2: and let the cart go through. A murmur of wrath and contempt went round the group of ill-clad wretches who crowded round Citizen Bibot. Half an hour later, up comes a captain of the
3: guard with a squad of some dozen soldiers with him, has a cart. "'Gone through,' he asks of Gropierre breathlessly. "'Yes,' says Gropierre, "'not half an hour ago.' "'And you have let them escape?' "'shouts the captain furiously. "'You will go to the guillotine for this citizen sergeant. "'That cart held concealed "'the former Duke de Chalice "'and his whole family.' "'What?' Thunders Gropierre aghast. Aye, and the driver was none other than that cursed Englishman, the Scarlet Pimpernel. A
1: howl of execration greeted this tale. Citizen Gropierre had paid for his blunder on the guillotine, but what a fool. Oh,
2: what a fool. Bibot was laughing so much at his own tale that it was some time before he could continue. After them, my men! Shouts
3: the captain. Remember the reward. After them, they cannot have gone far. And with that, he rushes through the gate, followed by his dozen soldiers. But it was too late! Shouted the crowd excitedly.
1: They never got them. Curse that Gropierre for his folly! He deserved his fate. Fancy not examining those casks properly.
3: But these sallies seemed to amuse Citizen Bibo exceedingly. He laughed until his sides ached, and the tears streamed down his cheeks. Nay! <laughs> Nay! He said at last. Those aristos weren't in the cart. The driver was not the Scarlet Pimpernel. What? No! The Cap of the guard was that damned Englishman in disguise, and every one of his soldiers, Aristos. The crowd this time said
1: nothing. The story certainly savored of the supernatural, and though the Republic had abolished God, it had not quite succeeded in killing the fear of the supernatural in the hearts of the people. Truly, that Englishman must be the devil himself.
2: The sun was sinking low in the west. Bibot prepared himself to close the gates.
3: Bring forward
2: the carts. Some dozen covered carts were drawn up in a row, ready to leave town in order to fetch the produce from the country close by for market the next morning. They were mostly well known to Bibot as they went through this gate twice every day on their way to and from the town. He spoke to one or two of their drivers, mostly women, and was at great pains to examine the insides of the cart. You never know. I am not going to
3: be caught like that fool, Gropier. (laughs) The women who drove the
1: carts usually spent their day on the Place de la Greve, beneath the platform of the guillotine, knitting and gossiping whilst they watched the rows of tumbrils arriving with the victims the Reign of Terror claimed every day. It was great fun to see the Aristos arriving for the reception of Madame la Guillotine, and the places close by the platform were very much sought after. Bibot, during the day, had been on duty on the place. He recognized most of the old hags, who sat there and knitted, whilst head after head fell beneath the knife, and they themselves got quite bespattered with the blood of those cursed Aristos.
2: "Hey, old woman," said Bibot to one of those horrible hags, "what have you got there?" He had seen her earlier in the day, with her knitting and the whip of her cart close beside her. Now she had fastened a row of curly locks to the whip handle, all colors from gold to silver, fair to dark, and she stroked them with her huge bony fingers as she laughed at Bibot.
3: Made friends with madame guillotine's lover she said with a coarse laugh
1: <laughs> he cut these off for me from the heads as they rolled down he has promised me some more to-morrow but i don't know if i shall be at my usual place uh-huh.
2: how is that asked bibot who hardened soldier though he was could not help shuddering at the awful loathsomeness of the semblance of a woman with her ghastly trophy on the handle of her whip.
1: My grandson has the
2: smallpox, she said with a jerk of her thumb towards the inside of her cart. Some say it's the plague. If it is, I shan't be allowed to
3: come into Paris tomorrow. At the first mention of the word smallpox, Bibot had stepped hastily backwards. And when the old hag spoke of the plague, He retreated from her as fast as he could. Curse you!
2: He muttered, whilst the whole crowd hastily avoided the cart, leaving it standing all alone in the midst of the place. The old hag laughed. (laughs) Curse
3: you, citizen, for being a coward! Bah! What a man to be afraid of sickness!
2: (laughs) Everyone was awestruck and silent filled with horror for the loathsome malady, the one thing which still had the power to arouse terror and disgust in these savage, brutalized creatures. Get out with
3: you and your plague-stricken brood, shouted Bibot hoarsely.
1: And with another rough laugh and coarse jest, the old hag whipped up her
2: lean nag and drove her cart out of the gate. This incident had spoiled the afternoon. The people were terrified of these two horrible curses, the two maladies which nothing could cure, which were the precursors of an awful and lonely death. They hung about the barricades, silent
3: and sullen for a while, eyeing one another suspiciously, avoiding each other as if by instinct, lest the plague lurked already in their midst. Presently, as in the case of Gropierre, a captain of the guard appeared suddenly. But he was known to be and there was no fear of his turning out to be a sly Englishman in disguise. A cart! He shouted breathlessly, even
2: before he had reached the gates. What cart? Driven by an old hag. A a colored cart. Uh, There were a dozen. An old hag? Who who said her son had the plague? Yes? You have not let them go. (gasps) Good
1: heavens, said Bibot, whose purple cheeks had suddenly become white with
2: fear. The cart contained the former Countess Tournay and her two children, all of them traitors and condemned to death. And
1: their driver, muttered Bibot, as a superstitious shudder ran down his spine. By
2: thunder! It is feared that it was the accursed Englishman himself, the Scarlet Pimpernel.
0: In this episode of For Starters, you heard Jaden Moore as narrator one and the old woman, Michael Wilhelm as narrator two and captain of the guard, and Dennis Nichols as narrator three and Bibot. Hi, I'm Stacy Custer, the Executive Director of All For One Productions.
4: And I'm Lauren Nichols, the Artistic Director with All For One. Yes, and thank you for joining us today
0: for this reading of The Scarlet Pimpernel. Uh, Lauren, this was your choice. It was. Yes, I know very little about this book, actually. Um, so you feel free to fill us well, in. What's going what on what I here? mainly
4: know was a wonderful, I think made for television adaptation from 1982 that starred Anthony Andrews and Jane Seymour and Ian McKellen, oh my goodness. It was beautifully, beautifully adapted and beautifully acted. And it was actually after I saw that that I wanted to read the book. And this is one case, it may never happen again that I say I was a little disappointed in the book after. But I think what happened was um, Baroness Ortsey actually wrote four Scarlet Pimpernel books and numerous short stories, and I suspect having only read the first book, that they conflated a couple of them because I, I know that the the chief villain, Chauvelin, who, who comes into the um, story a little bit later, is in another novel because he does not get okay. his ultimate comeuppance in that first book. And he does. Spoiler. <laughs> I, you, this is not the kind of, of, of story that when you start into it, you really have any doubt as to how it's going to end. Yeah. It's just a good, clever, exciting kind of romantic adventure. Um, on the order of the Three Musketeers. Okay. It has that kind of flavor to it, although written quite a bit later than you would think, since she wrote them in the early 1900s. But fun fact, she I did not know this until I started doing the research for the podcast, she's credited with originating that idea of the almost superhuman Hero with the mild-mannered disguise. Really, because the Scarlet Pimpernel, he disguises himself as the most idiotic <laughs> dandy in England. I mean, oh, everybody just cringes because he's just a ninny, with he's just c- obsessed with dress and this kind of high-pitched laugh. And oh, this—how could anyone take this man seriously? Right. And yet, he's a master of disguise and a brilliant swordsman and according to the book, can can sail his own yacht just as well as any sea captain. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> wow. So at any rate, but yeah, they say you know, she, he, he predates Zorro and all of the superhero genre. Right. You know, I think yeah. Superman, Batman, Batman Spider-Man, yeah. all of those. So that's kind of fun to know that uh, he is probably the original. The Very cool. The hero with the mild-mannered alter ego. That's
0: fun. So as we were reading and, and listening, um, you know, to this excerpt, uh, and we mentioned at the beginning, we did translate some of the French yes, into English. Yes, do is we have French to speak French no, to be able to understand? You this can
4: book? figure out what it is. Yeah, she w- was of her time. She was a, a noble woman who, obviously, you know, everyone in her circle spoke French as a second language, and mm-hmm. they liberally sprinkled their books with bits of French, partly because it does give you more of the color of the French Revolution, you know, the era of the late 1700s, but honestly, you can figure out that citoyen is citizen and that si devant means uh, former, so I just changed them. It, it was easier for our listeners than wondering what in the world they're saying, you know. Yeah, But it was it was really the same couple of words that I kept on coming across. Um, yeah, I think people would be able to figure that out very easily. There weren't any long phrases or quotations. Good. And
0: there's always Google Translate. Right? And there's
4: always Google Translate. That's <laughs> right, if you're not sure. And and really, it, it would be interesting to listen to an unabridged version of this. You would probably hear the French in context. And after you hear that for a while, it, it also makes good sense. T- I counted at least a dozen audible entries in the uh, unabridged category. It runs eight or nine hours. Um, it's a fast read. I just reread it recently and it's, a, it's an interesting story. It's interesting to read it and then watch that 1982 version because in both cases the main character, that, the character from whose point of view much of the story is told, is the Scarlet Pimpernel's wife, Marguerite, because they spend the whole first book at odds. She doesn't know who he really is and she kind of looks down on him. Mm-hmm. She's married him for his position and to get out of France. And he can't trust her because he believes that she has betrayed some French nobleman that he was trying to save. And um, so that creates marvelous tension between them. um, I know there's also a 1932 version with uh, Leslie Howard, I believe, which is also an excellent um, black and white version. But I'd say go find the 1982 version. I know it's on DVD. It's probably also on Amazon Prime. And uh enjoy it. It's just it's just a fun story. This is a great date night movie. If you like that kind of a a classic film, nice. I'd say um I would I Good. would recommend it. This, this may be the only time <laughs> that I recommend <laughs> the movie the film version of the than book. book.
0: Nice. Nice. It happens every now and it then. Does. There's a yeah. But when you can tell like you were mentioning that you felt that the movie may have conflated a couple of stories. Yes, in order to, to tell the whole story of, and
4: and yeah. add some nuance to it as yeah. as well. Um, but the, the the wonderful the the daring and a very really this group of Englishmen were very selfless. They they were going in and they had no vested interest in these mm-hmm. French noblemen. Yeah, and give us just spared. a little bit
0: of the background.
4: Okay, of what the, when the, the French set. Revolution. Uh, People, you know, it would be probably fun to read um, an annotated version of this that would give you a little of the backstory. Right after our American Revolution, everything really went to pot over in France. And there was this huge uprising of the middle class and the peasantry against the nobility and the excesses of the nobility who had always lived very extravagant lives. And you, you'll, you hear that, I think, in the narrative. And most people, I think, are, are at least somewhat aware of the guillotine. Well, they just—they pretty much killed everybody they could possibly get their hands on, including eventually Louis the Fourteenth and Marie Antoinette. Um, That's—that is really as much as anyone needs to understand. You know, eventually, things calmed down a little bit, and then Napoleon came along, and then it was—it was the Republic again, and then he was defeated. And they eventually went back to a monarchy yet again. Um, but France, uh, France in their struggle for Republican government, did things in a very different way than um, England and America. I'm happy to say that the American Revolution wasn't nearly as bloody or ugly as this one, although they supposedly stood for the same things. they. Definitely went about it went in a about different it way, different ways. Yes, yep. but yeah. really, it's the the French Revolution. In the story is the backdrop for a very specific story about daring do and clever escapes and um, clever strategies and disguises, and then this romantic um, relationship and the misunderstanding between the main characters. That's really in the foreground. She's she's telling a, a, a very uh exciting romantic it's it's a it's a pot boiler really. She wasn't writing high literature. <laughs> I'm not I don't Just know her, a good I don't know a lot of her backstory. I know that she was uh foreign born and landed in England and this is how she made her name and they were wa- obviously wildly popular, but uh I don't know much more than that. All
0: right. Very good well thank you for joining us today uh, for the scarlet pimpernel we look forward to um, having you back with us next time with our reading of the boxcar children
4: hmm another good one
0: yes my, one of my daughter's absolute favorites growing up which i found out when i told her we were doing oh. the book for this she was like oh, i'm so glad i loved it when you read that okay <laughs> i don't actually remember reading it to them but
4: Aren't you glad we you did. did?
0: I am glad I did. It made an impression on her, if not me. Well, that's what I we're remember hoping. it from when I was a kid. I'm, you
4: know, I'm really hoping that that this will uh, maybe cause some people to remember. Oh, yeah. I'd forgotten about that story. Because honestly, that's why I chose this. I was looking through the list of public domain works and saw the title and went, oh, "That's a great story." Yeah. So, we hope to appetize you with many stories that you go out and pursue uh, the rest of on your own. Happy reading.
0: This production was recorded and engineered by Frosty Pictures with the support of the Community Foundation of Greater Fort Wayne.